Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise for your love and your generosity, for your pursuit of us, Lord God, how you've chased after us, how you've called us into a relationship with Christ, and how you've invited us into communion, into fellowship with you, that we would be a part of the family of God, sons and daughters of the living God. What an amazing gift. And beyond that, Lord God, you've supplied the Word of God uh, and have given it to us so that we would know how you think and feel, so that we would know how to conduct ourselves on this road of life, Lord God. So we pray tonight, once again, as we turn to the pages of Scripture, that you would equip us to understand. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit as our teacher tonight and leave us uh, changed this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I've heard people express throughout the years of ministry frustration in the fact that the Bible does not have a lot of content on dating. Well, I I just wish there was like some story in there where like we could see how biblically what it looked like to date. And guys, I want to tell you, there's plenty in the Bible about how you should conduct yourself while you're dating. For instance, be kind, be friendly. He who has friends must himself be friendly, the Bible says. Self-control abstaining from sexual immorality. It says that in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, is it? It says, this is the will of God for you, that you would abstain from sexual immorality and know how to conduct yourselves. So we have these things. We know how to, how to live as Christians and how to function in dating, but it's true. There's really no example in the Scriptures of a couple dating. And the reason is because people didn't date in the Bible days, guys. This, this is a fairly new thing. For thousands and thousands of years, dating was not a thing. Abraham, in the days of Abraham, they didn't date. It was arranged marriages. In the days of Jesus, it was arranged marriages. Something a little different in the days of Jesus was that they had courtship. There was like a betrothal period. But even that wasn't so much dating because you were already considered married once you were betrothed. And you, you would enjoy or you would be in this committed marriage relationship in all ways except for physical intimacy and living together. So it, it, even that, that courtship wasn't a picture of dating for us. In fact, if we look at the very first marriage in the Bible, you can glean so much from Adam and Eve and that union as far as what God desires for marriage, but definitely no dating, right? Because they were created and bam, they were married. So it's, it's a little impractical when you're, when, you're, when you're in this stage of life trying to find a spouse to look to Adam and Eve. It's actually, let's, let's be real, it's a little unrealistic when you look to Adam and Eve because here you got this dude, Adam, knows, you know, brand new on the scene, and he scores a babe like Eve. And let's be honest, it's only because he was the only option. (laughs) Like, he was the only guy in the species available. So it was pretty easy for Adam, right? But no, we looked at Adam and Eve, and you still don't get the example for dating. And so you may be frustrated at the lack of dating examples in the Bible, but I'm sure you're happy with the fact that you get to play more of a role in choosing your spouse than they did. Can I get an amen? Are you happy about that at least? Okay, I'm glad you're happy about that. We can have a positive spin on this. But I just want to tell you guys that the key to finding the right person, for finding the right spouse, is not found in arranged marriages or courtship or dating. It's not found in any of these specifically. Although, side note, it's interesting to note that arranged marriages have a lower divorce rate. Kind of interesting. Maybe the commitment level is a little higher for that kind of culture. But it's not found, the key is not found in any of these methods 
The key is found in this, that you as an individual would pursue Christ first and foremost in your life. And that you would look for a, a partner who does the same, who puts Christ first in their life. In fact, to the degree that you put Christ first will be the degree that God blesses your pursuit of a spouse. You put God first, you, put, you pursue Christ first and foremost, you're putting it into God's hands. And the opposite is true. To the degree that you do not pursue Christ is the degree that you set yourself up for finding a dud spouse. To the degree that you set yourself up for being a dud spouse. Let's be real, okay? So pursue Christ. That is the true key. That is worth your whole time tonight. Write that down because that's super, super important. And that's what we see demonstrated in this chapter tonight. Uh, we're going to see Rebecca given to Isaac in marriage. And though it's a, another non-dating example, it is, uh, there's some amazing insight as to how we can be ready for the Lord to bring us the right spouse. As we see the examples of Rebecca, of Isaac, and what they did prior to this, to this betrothal. Verse 1. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Uh, they felt the need to really emphasize he was old. Like he's old. No, he's really old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all, he, all that he had, put your hand under my thigh um, that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Abraham, he's, he's preparing for his passing and he wants to get things in order. And just right out of the gate, I want to say that that's wise. That we would live in light of our death day. That we would live and, and make sure our, our relationships are healthy. Make sure that we don't set our loved ones up with burdens or misdirection or with financial burden. Abraham's wise. He's trying to get his things in order uh, before he does this. And so he's, he's serious about what he needs to take care of. And he, so, so he makes his servant make a serious oath. And he says, come here. Put your hand under my thigh. Come on. No, we're doing this here and now. Put it under my thigh. Now, the best I could find with regards to commentary on this is that, like, nobody knows why they did this. <laughs> it was just, the best I can come up with is that it was just something cultural. In fact, you look, you dive into the original language, and it gets even weirder what it could have meant. Um, but as far as we know, this was just something cultural they did when you were making a, a very serious personal oath. You would stick your hand under someone's thigh. In fact, we'll see Joseph do this uh, later on in Genesis as well. But we, we, re we read him setting up this, this awkward oath and his pressing order of business was that before his passing, Isaac would have a spouse, would find a spouse. And he says, make sure that you find a spouse for Isaac, not from the Canaanites, but from my people group. Now the word there for people is the word for seed. So the idea here is hearkening back to the covenant of God, that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, that through the seed of the woman, Satan would be defeated, the serpent would be defeated. So it's hearkening back to these covenants. He says, you can't find a wife from the people of the Canaanites. And I just want to say that this has nothing to do with race 
or segregation. A lot of people will go to these Bible verses and see, see, God wants segregation. God wants, you know, races to be split apart. And there's other, there's other uh, texts that people will, will use as even stronger examples of that. This has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with the covenants and the plan of salvation. You see, as God's moving things toward salvation for all of mankind, He's making one nation here. One chosen nation who will preserve and pass down the oracles of God. A nation, one specific nation, who would keep the story straight about creation and the fall and sin and all that. He's he's creating the nation of Israel. Not only would they preserve the word and pass the oracles of God down, but through the nation of Israel, the Messiah would be born eventually. And so so Abraham seeks a wife for Isaac from his relatives not to preserve a superior race. Okay, understand that. In fact, there have been people from all different colors who have tried to use the Hebrews in the Bible to say they're actually the true Hebrews and therefore they're a superior race. But the the Israelites weren't chosen because they were superior. God was never trying to make a superior race. In fact, he even said, look, I didn't choose you because you were like great and many in number. In fact, I chose you because you were small and I just happened to, to, to choose to love you. I chose to love you and keep my promises toward you. In fact, he'll say in Deuteronomy 9, he says, I'm giving you this land, not because your righteousness or your integrity, but I'm I'm, I'm opening this land up to you because of my promises and because of their weakness, I'll drive them out. It had nothing to do with Israel's superiority, but had everything to do with the covenants. And I just want to say, guys, we're living in a time, obviously, when when race is such a huge conversation and there's so much tension with regards to race and culture and background. And I want to tell you straight up, guys, if your race or nationality is more important to you than the salvation of souls, then there's a good chance you don't really belong to the kingdom of God or you're not understanding the kingdom of God. If you find your identity in your skin color or in what your culture says, more than you find your identity in Jesus and what the Bible says, you're probably not really a Christian. You probably haven't made Jesus your Lord. And there's so many people in our country today, the tensions are so high because so many people are finding their identity in other things, in things other than Christ. Professing believers finding their true identities in their skin color or in their upbringing or in what society says they should be. That's not how Christians ought to operate, guys. As Christians, we should value salvation above everything else, disregarding race, background, color, any any of that, disregarding all of that because God wants all men, all women to be saved. And above everything else, we should value God's word over our culture. We need to put God's word elevated above what our culture is pressuring us to be or say or think. Now, one more thing I want to point out before moving on about Isaac is that he is 45 years old at this point in time. You think you're waiting a long time for a spouse? Anybody over 30 in here? I think I'm the only one. Uh, Isaac had to wait till he was 45 years old. And at this point, the reason I point this out as well is because he's a grown man. So he's likely a part of what's taking place here. Um, He's consented to this arranged marriage. In fact, I picture him probably pulling the servant aside like, hey man, 
come here, let me, let me give you a list of things that I want you to look for when you go find me a wife. You know, it, it reminded me of a, a silly joke a pastor named Don McClure told one time when he was here. And it's this dialogue between God and Adam about the amazing wife God was going to make Adam. And, and God's like, Adam, man, you're going to be so blessed. Just wait till you see. She's going to knock you off your feet. She's going to be a gorgeous woman. You're going to love this woman. Just wait till I see. Oh, yeah, okay, what's, what's, it, what's she going to be like? Well, let me tell you, she is going to be such a hard worker. Like, she's going to make the Proverbs 31 woman look lazy, right? And, and man, a cook, she's going to be, a, she's not just going to be a cook. Like, she's going to be a butcher and a farmer, and she's going to be a gourmet chef. Like, it's, it's going to blow your mind. And homemaker, forget it. Like she, she can, she'll construct you a custom home, and and she she can put in a spa and everything. Like she's going to be incredible. And Adam's like, what? Okay, all right, let's do. This. Well, what is that going to cost me, Lord? And God's like, mm, that'll that'll be an arm and a leg. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And so Adam's like, ooh, what can I get for a rib? You know? And so that's that's yeah, not exactly PC, but I think I think it's funny. So that's what this reminds me of. He's like, hey, servant, come here. I, I, I want you to take, take down a list of things that I would love for you. If you're going to find my wife, you've got to know some things here. So not only has he consented to the arranged marriage, he's old enough, but he's also old enough to, to tr- he's, he's choosing to trust Abraham and the servant with supplying a wife for him. In other words, he's choosing, uh, he's trusting in God to fulfill these promises. He's trusting in God to bring the right woman. And I love that about Isaac. He doesn't have to, he doesn't feel the need to go out and like, oh man, oh, well, I, you got to at least line up six of them so I can pick, you know. He's like, I trust God to bring the right, the right person through this method. Verse five, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So Abraham is emphatic that Isaac is not to go back to the old country. Why? Because this is their new home. This is the new thing that God is doing, and they are not to go back to the old familiar ways. You remember that was Abraham's struggle. He would, he would fall back. When, when times got tough in the promised land, he went to the big city of Egypt because that's what he was used to. Babel, right? The, the old Babylon. That's where Abraham came from. He went back to the king of Ahimelech. And each time he put Sarah in danger. He put the covenant in danger. And so he's saying, look, I don't want Isaac to even be tempted to go back to the old ways. If we are going to move forward with the promises of God, then we are not to go back to the big city of Babel. We are not to go back to the idols of Babel. And if Isaac is going to move forward, he must remain in the land of Canaan. He has to stay here. And the same is true for us, guys. If we are going to accomplish what God desires to accomplish in us and through us, we must remain in the promised land. We must abide in Christ. If you want to be secure in your salvation, if you want God to continue to move things forward in your life, 
you must abide in Christ. Can God use our backslidings and our mistakes? Absolutely. Can God use those things to work amazing things? Absolutely. He's graceful. He's merciful. He can do anything. But if you want to move forward in the promises of God, see to it that you abide in the promised land, that you remain in it. And if, as parents, right, if we are to train our kids in the way they should go, then we need to make sure they, they, they will not be led away from Christ. There are a lot of servants in our culture today that help with our kids, and it's up to us parents to really make sure these servants aren't leading our kids away. It's up to us parents to make sure our teachers are not leading them down paths that are unbiblical, that are not true, leading them apart from Christ. That we, the, the servant of Netflix or PBS or these other uh, cartoons for kids, it's, as a parent, it's up to me to make sure these servants aren't misleading my children out of the promised land. And as a parent, my job as a, kid, as a, as a parent is to make sure I emphasize to my kid, look, yes, a wife is good, a job is good, good grades, it's all great, but nothing should be more important than you abiding in Christ, than you having a relationship with Jesus. More, Abraham's like, this wife thing is super important, but above everything else, Isaac is to remain in the promised land, in the promises of God. Now, aside from this literal marriage that we're going to see unfold, we also see an amazing typology in this chapter that as Abraham, the father, seeks a bride for his son, he sends out his servant, his helper. Okay, And in this, we get the picture of God the Father sending out the Holy Spirit into the world seeking a bride for Christ. Did you know the church is called the bride of Christ? That we who trust in, in Jesus, we are actually his bride. Yes, even the men, we are the bride of Christ. And I'm not ashamed to say it. It's awesome. Uh, but this is an amazing picture we get. And it, it's woven throughout the chapter. So many amazing illustrations. Today we see this. The Holy Spirit moving through the world. Inviting people into a relationship with Jesus. And just as Abraham knew the woman would have to choose for this to work. So too the Holy Spirit. He doesn't force us to receive Christ. He gives us a choice. Now I will just speak briefly to a doctrine called irresistible grace that some, some Christians believe in, and I don't think they're not Christians, but they'll teach this doctrine that says God has, it's almost like a mystical, magical grace they, that God will sprinkle on you that you have no choice. You cannot resist His grace. And if He sprinkles His grace on you, you, ha- you will say yes. You have to say yes. That is not, that is overruling a man's free will. And the Bible clearly teaches that we must have free will. So the Holy Spirit doesn't force Christ upon us he draws us to Christ. He, he, he calls us to Christ. He shows us the kindness of God. He stirs our hearts to make a choice. And as God said to the, to the Jews, He said, I have set before you today life and death. Therefore, choose life and live. Make a choice. I have provided life. Choose life and live. And here's the deal, guys. There is no true love without choice. For you to have a true love relationship with your future spouse, you both must choose. And and this is from the creation of the world. This was God's intent, that He would have a true love relationship with you. But it would require you to make a choice. You must choose. I must choose. The servant will give Rebecca a chance to choose whether or not she will go with him. And I also want you to notice, guys, 
if Abraham, Abraham said, if the woman says no, then the servant is free from his oath and free to leave the woman and, and return home. And this is also an important spiritual illustration that we have. In fact, Jesus said to us, he said, if anyone speaks against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But if anyone speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And the idea here is similar to Isaac, the son. He's the one the woman will wed, but right now it's the servant who has the power to bring this woman into the family of God. So too, it is the Holy Spirit who comes alongside people and ushers them into a relationship with Christ. And if you, you can have your opinions about Christ and about what He said and about what He did, but for you to reject the work of the Holy Spirit is to reject the One who will bring you to Christ. It's to reject the One who will regenerate your soul, who will do the work within your life. So an important picture here. And guys, you never know when the Holy Spirit will be like, that's it. I'm done. There is a line biblically that we find where if you resist and you resist and you resist, the servant will be freed from his, his obligation to compel you to follow Christ. You do not want to cross that line. We see some of the Pharisees in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, seeming to have crossed that line. They resist and they resist, and though they see Jesus work the very miracles of God, they continue to resist. And if you continue to harden your heart and harden your heart, you might not get another chance. So the servant, he sets off to find a bride for Isaac. In verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. So the Holy Spirit also has gifts, doesn't he? So we see this, this analogy continuing. He has gifts for those who will follow him. And it says, He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Naor. Now I want you to keep in mind, the city of Naor is about 500 miles away. This is like weeks of traveling, all between verse 10 and 11. And it just, we don't get any of that, what happened on that way. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. So they pull up all their camels and all the stuff, all the supplies that they had, and he's got this plan. We're going to wait at this well because at this time it was the cultural norm for the women to come out and draw water from the well around this time. And so we're going to wait and see what kind of women come out here. And Lord, as, as we're coming up with this plan, we just hope that you open the door. He says, Lord, grant me success Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And I just, I love how loyal this guy is to Abraham. Like, he genuinely wants to do a good job. And not just for his own sake, but that his master would be blessed. Like, this is a servant that you want under you. This is a servant that you want to be. I think we could learn a lesson from this guy that we would be those who, who are loyal to those we are called to serve, even if we don't like them that we would be those who, who serve our bosses as unto the Lord, seeking their good. That we would seek the benefit of those who are over us. Um, we see this in the life of Joseph, just diligently seeking the good of those who were over him, even those who were oppressing him. 
And this, this servant has that heart toward Abraham. He just wants what's good for Abraham. Verse 13, Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you show steadfast love to my master. And so the servant's praying this prayer and he gets all like secret agent on the Lord. He's like, okay, the, the question is, may I have a drink? And the, the passcode is, yes, may I also water your camels? That, that will be the secret between me and you, Lord. That'll be the woman that does it. But guys, this isn't just some arbitrary test. This isn't just some random fleece. He lays before the Lord. You know what I mean by fleece? With Gideon, Gideon was like, Lord, I'm going to lay this carpet down, and if, if the rug is wet and the ground is dry, then I know it's you. Okay, one more time. Uh, I'm going to lay this thing down, and if the ground is dry and the carpet's wet, then I really know it's you. It's more than that. This guy's showing real wisdom in what he's requesting. Number one, he's wise because he's praying something specific. So when you pray specifically, God can answer specifically. There's great wisdom in that. In fact, a couple of cool stories for you guys. Uh, Pastor Gabe Moreno, he was on staff here for years. He started feeling the call to go to Portland and take over a Calvary Chapel uh, that, from a man that was transitioning out. And he was praying. He's like, Lord, I don't know if we should go or not. And he, he talked with his wife and he's like, we have a lot of debt. It wouldn't be right for us to just go take this job and take a pay cut when we have all this debt. So he's like, Lord, help us to pay down our debt. Uh, and then I'll know it's, then, then you're calling us to go. Well, it was maybe a few weeks later that he gets a check in the mail from some lawsuit that they didn't even know they were a part of, and it was just about the exact amount to pay off their debt. And the lawsuit company was uh, from Portland, Oregon. The address was a Portland address. They're like, what? They prayed specifically, and God answered specifically. A similar thing happened to Pastor Nick Weiss, and Amber, when they went to plant a church in, in Texas, they're like, Lord, if we're going to church plant, we'd probably have to sell our house, which means we need to put a new roof on the house. So, Lord, you know, that's, we'll put that before you. Lord, if you want us to go, provide a roof. And there was a hailstorm around the same time. And maybe it was a few, it might even have been just days after Nick was praying this, that a guy knocked on his door and was like, hey, I'm with this roofing company, and insurance companies are paying us to replace roofs because a lot of roofs got messed up. Nick ended up getting a free roof uh, from this. And he prayed specifically and God answered specifically. So there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in praying specifically to the Lord so he can answer specifically. Now, another wise thing about this servant is because his desired response will indicate something about the woman. If the woman answers the way he wants her to, it will indicate that she is a woman of humility She's a woman of generosity. She's a woman who works hard. These are amazing traits that, look, if you want to be a, a, a good spouse, you should exhibit humility. Like, nobody, you might catch somebody's eye by being arrogant and, pride and, and proud, but you're not going to be fun to be in a relationship long term. Humility goes a long way. Be humble. Be about the service of others. Be generous and be hardworking. These are valuable qualities in any relationship, especially in a marriage. And 
on the other hand, you should be looking for someone like this. This is the kind of spouse the servant is looking for for Isaac. He's like, I want a woman who is a, who is a servant, who is a hardworking woman, who's, who's generous with her time and her resources. And this, of course, the typology of the Holy Spirit continues. In this, the Holy Spirit functions the same way. The Bible tells us God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so it's like the Holy Spirit with all of His gifts and in looking to bless people on behalf of the Father and the Son, He sees someone proud and He actually will resist that person. But when He sees someone humble, He desires to lavish grace and mercy upon that person. Humility, it's an amazing characteristic that we ought to emulate. And that's, that's what this man is looking for with regards to a wife for Isaac. Hi everyone, Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to those of you who also share this content and help us get the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus out into our community. We would love to invite you out to our in-person services. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus. In the meantime, keep reading, keep praying, and keep worshiping. God bless you.